G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We're getting into a really interesting part of Genesis 4 and one that I think a lot of people would have questions about. Yeah, I reckon that's true, Chris, and hopefully this treatment of Genesis 4 has answered a lot of questions for a lot of people and perhaps raised new ones. So I just want to say to all our listeners, if you have questions about anything that we've talked about on the show or perhaps something that wasn't talked about that you'd like to hear more about, please don't hesitate to send us your questions. Yeah, very good reminder. And there are a multitude of ways that you can do that. The most obvious is to jump on our website, giantanswers.com, and use the contact form to submit your questions. Or you can find us in various Facebook groups and this Facebook page for answers to giant questions. There's also Tim's author page, TJ Stedman, which you can find on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Reach out any way you can and send in those uh Tricky questions, because those are Tim's favourite. And don't forget to buy a copy of Answers to Giant Questions while you're on the website, because it's probably going to answer a lot of questions you might have had. Also, it puts money in my pocket, which means eggnog in my belly, and eggnog makes me happy. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, getting a bit late for eggnog season now, though, isn't it? The nog is, once again, becoming scarce. Holiday stocks have dried up. I'm being forced to travel in wider circles looking for any outlying pockets of eggnog that remain untapped. Outlaw dairy gangs rule the highways, terrorising the townspeople for the last remnants of that sweet gasoline. Mad Max has become Mad Tim. Uh, so what are you going to do when the eggnog runs out? I'm training myself to get by on other products in the meantime. Are you familiar with Cine Bun flavoured milk? Uh, did you just make that up? Is that a real thing? No, that's a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> you can live on it. Yeah, Adapt it. Okay. overcome. 330 days until next eggnog season. I'm looking to buy some chickens. You've got mad. Mad, I'll tell you. Well, the price of eggs at the moment. You want to know about mad? You've heard of Mad Max. Let's talk about Mad Lamech, the king of chaos. Another one of your trademark perfectly executed segues. Yeah, it ain't much, but it's honest work. Let's read our text for today. Genesis 4, verses 19 to 22. Lamech married two women, one named Adar and the other Tzillah. Adar gave birth to Yabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Yuval. He was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes. Tzillah also had a son, Tuval Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tuval Cain's sister was Naama. So it sounds like we've finished uh, straining Genesis 4.18 and ringing it out for all it's worth, much like uh, your eggnog-filled beard. Yes, we can move on from that now, although I really think it was worth the time spent on it. Absolutely. I, I don't think anyone who hears this podcast is ever going to read Genesis 4 the same way ever again. That's what we want. That's a good idea, actually. I should bring my beard out and get some more eggnog. Anyway... Uh, look, we, you know, we could continue to set a snail's pace through the rest of the chapter, but I think the point's been made. If you want to do justice to the biblical text, you absolutely need context. I'm not going to continue to crawl through these verses in the same level of detail because we'd never get anywhere. It took us a month to do one verse. I just want to tell you a little bit more about some of the sources I've been using to put this stuff together for you. I haven't come across anybody who's connected the dots the way that I have here because everyone's specialising in their own thing and they're not looking at a big picture, but... I've been going through the work of Richard Hess for the historical context and analysis of the names 
Uh, also, Father Paul Tarazi for his analysis of the Hebrew as a spoken word, uh, and various others who contributed insights here and there. So you can look those guys up, see if anything else stands out to you if you really want to get granular with this. But I'm confident that the work of done in putting this together is sufficient to see what the biblical author is doing and how it works in the broader context of Scripture. You know what the Bible's like. You'll never get it all, but at some point you need to move on and continue reading or you miss the point. So we're going to turn our attention now to this story of Lamech. Right off the bat, it's interesting that Lamech has a story at all because this so-called genealogy that we've been reading just runs through the names quickly and then we have this little interruption here with an expansion, a story about Lamech and about his family. Is it really a family that we're talking about here? Or is this another one of those fake genealogies where there's not really some kind of natural family in the story? Well, that's a bit harder to answer than it was when we asked that question in Genesis 4.18. Last time it was really obvious that we were not talking about natural genealogical lines of descent because you simply don't have men giving birth, as the text made clear in Hebrew. It's easy to miss that in the English translation, but that's not how we arrive at the meaning of the text. This time around, we have ordinary language for a family situation. We have names that really do occur in the ancient Near East in the form that we find them in the Bible. And we have something of a narrative, including speech, which is something that you wouldn't normally expect to find in the kind of story that isn't talking about real people. Having said all that, the names, of course, do convey meaning. And that meaning is going to tell us more than what this simple little story conveys on its face value. I mean, come on. What else would you expect after having got this far in Genesis? Good point. So uh, this might be about real people, but they probably have names selected by the author to give this story more depth. Yeah, that's right. That's definitely what's going on at a minimum. Let's get into it, see what we can find. The first thing that we're confronted with is the idea that Lemek has chosen to take two wives. This is so far unprecedented in the biblical text, but we have to remember the context in which this story is being presented. The readers of this story and the audience hearing these words for the first time are not living in the 5th millennium BC. It's more like the 5th century BC. We're talking about the context of the exile in Babylon. And what that means is that the people of Israel are already aware of many stories from their own culture, from their own history, from their own scriptures that they already have, which talk about people taking multiple wives. And that means that the introduction of this concept here brings with it ideas that are already intrinsic to the Jewish cultural framework. I'm just going to read for you now an excerpt from the Lexham Bible Dictionary on polygamy. Once married, couples were expected to produce children. This was especially important for men with property who needed adult sons to inherit their land and goods. Due to the high mortality rate for infants as well as for women in childbirth, the birth of a son and his survival into adulthood was by no means guaranteed. Some men therefore practiced polygamy in order to produce at least one male heir. Some Old Testament polygamists include Esau, that's Genesis 26 and 36. Jacob in Genesis 29. Gideon in Judges 8. And Elkanah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. The Bible indicates that favoritism was a common problem in polygamous marriages. Jacob, for example, clearly favored Rachel. It's Genesis 29. And Elkanah gave special attention to Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. A polygamist who was partial to one wife tended to disregard the rights of his other wives and their children. Therefore, the law included two statutes that restricted the consequences of favoritism. The firstborn son had rights of inheritance even if his father disliked his mother. That's Deuteronomy 21. A man could not favour a second beloved wife at the expense of a first wife. That's Exodus 21. A man who took a second wife had to contribute equally to the support of both wives. 
This included giving them both the opportunity to conceive children. Presumably then, only very wealthy men could afford to support more than one wife and her children. Now, going on with royal marriage in this reading. Wealthy and influential families often used marriages to form alliances with other prominent families. This was especially true of royal families. For example, David's marriages to Saul's daughter Michal and to Abigail, the widow of a wealthy Judahite landowner, seem like clear bids for influence and property. It's 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 25. Later, royal marriages are intended to cement political ties between nations. You have David to Maacah of Geshur in 2 Samuel 3, Solomon to Pharaoh's daughter in 1 Kings 9, Ahab to Jezebel of Phoenicia in 1 Kings 16, Jehoram of Judah to Atalia of Israel in 2 Kings 8. Psalm 45 was probably commissioned for such a royal wedding. It describes a handsome king, his bride who must forget her people, and their expected offspring. Kings in particular had the political incentive and necessary resources to marry several wives. The wealthy King Solomon is said to have had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And that's mentioned in 1 Kings 11. And that's the end of the excerpt from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. So what we have is a situation where Lemek has taken multiple wives in order to guarantee succession and to cement his place as a king. And we went through lots of examples in that little reading there of polygamous relationships. Some of these people were actually considered to be really good people in general terms, guys like David and Solomon, for example. We know that they had their faults, but they're generally regarded as some of the greatest people in all of biblical history. Then you have other examples of people who were clearly not good. Ahab would be a classic example. The question is, what biblical story could the author of the primeval history be drawing on when he tells us the story of Lamech? What does he want you to be thinking about? And the answer to that question is right in front of our noses. Lamech's first wife is named Adar. Before we even get into a study of her name, let's have a think about where this name might appear elsewhere in scripture, because it's not uncommon. And outside of this passage, the first place you're going to find it is Genesis 36. That's the genealogy of Esau. And it tells us that a woman named Adar was not only one of Esau's multiple wives, but that she became the grandmother of Amalek. Now, if you've been studying the giants for some time, or perhaps you've read my book, you'd be aware of the connection of the Amalekites to the giant tribes of the wilderness at the borders of the Promised Land. I guarantee you that there was no faithful Jew listening to the words of Genesis 4 who did not pick up on the mention of a name connected to Amalek. So what the author has done here is not only paint a picture of a chaotic tyrant king who takes multiple wives in order to secure his legacy, which is in itself a statement that he doesn't trust God to preserve his kingship, but he's drawn a connection to the giants, which would be foreboding to the hearers of this text. The giants are coming. I knew this was going to get exciting. Bring on the monsters. I want some action. Yeah, well, it's coming and it's going to be awesome, but we've got a bit more work to do to build up to that point. Now that we've been able to see that literary connection, we can return to the story and see how the author is going to substantiate it. The name Ada is a sort of part name in that it forms an incomplete statement when translated. Usually names in the ancient world featured a theophoric element where some credit was given to a god for something. But the name of the god is missing. The name Adar translates to has adorned or has decorated. You can see how there should be the name of a god there at the start, but it looks like our Jewish author has removed it. 
You will have noticed by now that there are no gods named anywhere in the primeval history so far, except for Yahweh, the God of Israel, of course. That's not accidental. But most ancient Near Eastern families worshipped the same gods from generation to generation. And whether we have a biological connection back to Cain or not, it seems clear that our author intends for us to read this whole story in the light of Cain's disloyalty to Yahweh in favour of another god, which we mentioned in previous episodes. And that would be the god that New Testament authors would later identify as Satan. We're talking about Baal, aka Hadad or Hadu, and it is that name which is most commonly seen in connection to Adar elsewhere in the ancient Near East. Getting back to Genesis 36 and the literary connection to Esau, his wife, Adar, is explicitly mentioned as the daughter of a man known as Elon the Hittite. Now, I'm not going to get into any Elon Musk conspiracy theories here, but the point is that she is depicted as a woman from a tribe that the people of Israel were forbidden to intermarry with. And again, one of the reasons for that prohibition was the connection with the giant clans, because the number one group that comes up in every single list of the giant clans is the Hittites. So even without the connection to Amalek, you should be able to see what the author is hinting at here. Yeah, the giants are coming. That's right, they certainly are. But let's go back quickly to the name of Adar. I mentioned that the name has something to do with ornamentation or adornment. What we're seeing here is a reference to the artificial beautification of women. This is something that the Jews were exposed to in Babylon, where the art of cosmetics was highly prized as indicative of high civilization. We looked at cities earlier and talked about how the exilic Jews saw them as bad news. Then we saw how the outcome of this mass urbanization was men becoming passive and the breaking down of the function that God intended for humanity as his representatives. And that functionality was expressed as prophetic, priestly and kingly responsibilities, all of which broke down as we saw this civilization take hold. Now Lamech, the king of chaos, has taken over and he has taken multiple wives in order to secure his reign. Not only that, but the objectification of his wives speaks clearly about the destruction of proper womanhood to suit his purpose. All of these are bad things. But you might be wondering, what could be so bad about women using artificial means to make themselves more beautiful? Hey, Tim, I was just wondering, what could be so bad about women using artificial means to make themselves more beautiful? I mean, isn't it good for a woman to look pretty and to, you know, feel nice about how she looks? Yeah, that's fine on the face of it, pun intended. It's not about looking good for the sake of your own satisfaction. We're, we're talking here about the art of seduction and luring others into temptation and sexual sin. We're going to see more about that in a moment. Well, we've got lots to get through, so let's keep going and look at the other wife of Lemek. Silla is an interesting name because it has that quality of onomatopoeia. It sounds like the thing it's describing. The name means sweet singing, and it has that sound of symbols used in music. And music is going to be a theme as we continue. But notice the sound of cymbals. It's an instrument made of metal. These are connections you just don't get from reading words on a page. You need to hear the words spoken. Now we come back to Adar and her sons. Yaval is the first. This is a name that means flowing. The idea that something's coming forth from her as the mother, which is made manifest in the son. Yaval is said to be the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. The combination of tents and livestock is supposed to provide an image of travelling herdsmen who trade in cattle. So we're not talking about simple shepherdism, but something more akin to merchant traders. There's a subtle undercurrent throughout Genesis 4 concerning the negative view of those who travel and trade in merchandise of various kinds. 
It's alluded to in the name of Cain, described in the activities of the sons of Lamech, exemplified in Tubal Cain, and reflected in later stories about the Kenites. It comes through in the name Canaan, and of course, that whole people group, the Canaanites, which is the term sometimes translated as traffickers or merchants. And it's bad because it means that what God had freely provided when he created the animals has now become monetized and now it becomes a matter of the haves versus the have-nots. This turns survival and basic standards of living into something that only certain people can afford. That says a lot about civilization, doesn't it? Uh, do you realize that we are the only species on this planet that pays to live here? You mean you don't charge your pets any rent? Okay. Yeah, that, that is weird, isn't it? I mean, if you ever wanted to feel stupid, just think about that. You don't see animals paying for water. Nobody charges rent to the animals. That's how it's supposed to be for us. God gives all these things freely. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Next, we have Yuval, a similar name with a similar meaning, and what flows forth from his industry is music. But it would be too simplistic to just stop there and generalise about music as a whole. This guy didn't invent music. We have two kinds of musical instruments referred to here, and they are special instruments, not just ordinary music for the sake of music kind of things. The translations tend to let us down here because we just get generic terms. But these instruments are firstly the kinor, which was an instrument commonly used as part of exorcism rituals, and also involves in other situations where you're attempting to influence the spirits and the other instrument which is even lesser known than the kinor, is the yugav, or reed pipe. There are lots of terms for various kinds of pipes or flutes, but this one in particular only gets used a few times in scripture. And it gets its name from a word for heavy breathing. That's not to do with the kind of breathing you need to do to play this particular reed pipe. We're talking about the kind of heavy breathing in passionate situations, including the kind that goes on between the sheets. There are strong associations with lust and passion, this was a seductive instrument that sometimes had a part to play on occasions where there might be sexual activity. So rather than the standard reading of this in which we just attribute musical instruments to this guy, Yuval, we need to be thinking in terms of manipulating the spirit world and facilitating sexual passions. And I bet you wondered how on earth the author of First Enoch ever managed to get all this detail that he used in his expansion and commentary on Genesis 6. I'll give you the hint. He knew how to read scripture. Next, we turn our attention back to Tzillah and remembering the connotation from the sound of her name, which gave us this metallic musical quality. We should not be surprised to find that her son, Tual Cain, ends up being someone skilled in the art of making various instruments out of metal. I've mentioned in previous episodes of the podcast that it would have been quite a thing in a time long before the Iron Age to be working with iron. So if you're looking for your advanced ancient civilizations with technologies that were previously unheard of, there it is. We're right back in mankind's earliest days, and we've got this guy who was able to manufacture things, not only from bronze, but also from iron. It's interesting to note that the terminology in the Hebrew relates specifically to the idea of forming sharp items by hammering out a sharp edge, the way that a blacksmith might make a sword. In the ESV, he is described as a forger. That's not too bad. But then when it goes on to describe instruments, well, I can't decide whether that choice is ignorant or sublime. We've got a verbal root there, which is usually translated as uh, to create peace or silence. These are weapons of war. There's no doubt about it. And yet throughout this text, we're reminded of metallic instruments of music. That reminds me so much of the culture that we live in today. We don't hear the sounds of people dying by the sword. We just hear the music. 
Within the members of this family, we seem to have a collision of sex and violence masquerading as entertainment. That reminds me, Chris, uh, do you remember the 90s rock band called Bush? I do. I do remember you uh, liking them in particular back in the 90s. Uh, Glycerine, is that one of theirs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, one of my favourites. They had this song called Everything Zen, and Gavin Rossdale sings this line, there's no sex in your violence. I don't think that Gavin Rossdale was aware of the myth of the Watchers. I think when he wrote that line, he was just playing on the lyrics of another song that influenced him, which came from an iconic alt-rock band from the late 80s. What about Jane's Addiction, Chris? Do you remember them? I do, but I'd be hard-pressed to name any of their songs. Yeah, it's a bit like that. They, they didn't get a lot of uh, exposure here in Australia, but they, they had a song on their debut album, Nothing Shocking which had a weird title. It was called Ted, just admit it. A lot of people confuse the song title with the album title, since one line from that song is the album title. Nothing's shocking. And one of the other memorable lines from the song, and where this is relevant, what we're talking about is the repeated phrase, sex is violence. This is uh, what Gavin Rossdale was riffing on. I'm not suggesting that Perry Farrell was referencing this mythology either, but it seems quite fitting at the moment because these aspects of civilization, which ought to have been used for good, brought to the fore in this text, which is all about the escalation of human depravity. You can see how closely interwoven these different aspects of human civilization are in this text. It's like a package deal. You can't separate the violence and the sexual depravity from the music and the beauty. It all comes together in a chaotic mess. It tells us a lot about human civilization even today. And it leaves us with a few questions. Aside from the obvious introspection that this observation should cause about our entertainment choices and what that says about who we are, where did Tuval Cain get this technology? Where did his brothers get theirs? And why does the text go on to talk about his sister? Yeah, I was going to ask about that. What's the point of talking about the sister of Tuval Cain? She never gets mentioned again. That's kind of weird. Her name is Naama. It means beautiful or lovely. There is a Jewish tradition that this was Noah's wife. And you might have noticed that if you watch the Russell Crowe movie called Noah. And the only reason she's mentioned at all in this text is precisely because of what her name means, and that is what she represents in this story. What does it say when we read Genesis 6, verses 1 to 2? When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So, yeah, there it is. The daughters of man were attractive. That's why she's in the text. She's the connection between mankind and the sons of God. And now we can see the connection between the pride and boasting of Lamech and the technologies and advancements that were available to his children. I called this episode of the podcast Lamech's Deal, which is a reference to one of the subtitles in my book where I talk about this. We've already talked a little bit about marriage in the ancient Near East. And some customs from those times still exist in that part of the world today. It was customary for a man who wished to marry a woman to pay what was called the bride price or dowry. He would present this to the woman's parents in exchange for her hand in marriage. So we look at this guy, Lamech, and he has multiple wives. These wives provide sons. Both the wives and their sons become known for certain elements of civilization that appear to have begun with them. And had it not been for the connection made possible by the kind of instruments used by one of those sons, we might not have seen the connection that the author of First Enoch picked up on when he explained that it was the Watchers, or the Sons of God, who taught mankind these forbidden arts. So I'll give you a quote here from First Enoch, and I'm reading from the start of Chapter 6 in the R.H. Charles translation. And it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. 
And the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and beget us children. And Semyaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear you will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations, not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then swear they all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And they were in all two hundred who descended in the days of Yared on the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And these are the names of their leaders. Semiazaz, their leader, Arakibar, Ramiel, Kokabiel, Tamiel, Ramiel, Danel, Ezekiel, Barakliel, Asael, Amoros, Batarel, Ananel, Zakiel, Zamsapiel, Satarel, Turel, Yomiel, Sariel. These are their chiefs of tens. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one. And they began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. And they became pregnant and they bare great giants whose height was 3,000 elves who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to devour one another's flesh and to drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working them and bracelets and ornaments and the use of antimony and the beautifying of the eyelids and all kinds of costly stones and of all colouring tinctures. And there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray, and became corrupt in all their ways. Samyaza taught enchantments and root cuttings, Amros, the resolving of enchantments, Barakliao taught astrology, Kokabel, the constellations, Ezekiel, the knowledge of the clouds, Arakiel, the signs of the earth, Shamsiel, the signs of the sun, and Sariel, the course of the moon. And as men perished, they cried, and their cry went up to heaven. Well, that's the end of the reading. So it would appear that Lamech had made a deal with the sons of God that would ensure his legacy as king and set up his descendants for prosperity. I wrote about this in my book, of course, and we're going to talk about it some more next week when we get into the next part of Lamech's story. That is absolutely awesome. I can't wait for next week. But now it's time for our Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. We have a question from Justin from the Divine Council Worldview Discussion Group on Facebook. Thank you, Justin. And he asked, is Peter's vision in Acts 10 mapping onto the post-flood account by using imagery from Genesis 8, verse 20, 
to 9 verse 17? That is certainly an interesting question. There's a lot of scripture involved, so I'm not going to read the entire scripture that this question entails for the sake of time, but we can do a bit of a summary just to give listeners a bit of an idea of what's going on here. So Acts chapter 10 is the passage about a Gentile named Cornelius who has a vision from God in which he's instructed to summon the apostle Peter to come and visit him. Peter also has a vision, and in it he sees something like a sheep being lowered down from heaven with all kinds of animals in it. Peter is told to take these animals and kill and eat them, but he's reluctant because he doesn't want to be ceremonially unclean as a devout Jewish believer. And he's told repeatedly not to call what God has made clean, common or unclean. About this time, Peter receives the summons to Cornelius' house. So he goes there and tells Cornelius that in his understanding of the vision that he'd had, he has learned not to call people unclean that God has made clean. Then he preaches to Cornelius about Jesus and observes the Holy Spirit coming upon the Gentile Cornelius and his family. This all happens to show Peter that the Gentiles also have received salvation through Christ. Peter understands that since different people groups are identified by the different foods according to Levitical law, visually different foods were representative of different people groups. Hmm. So the question is, if we look back at the story of what happens after the flood, are we going to find a parallel with the story of Peter and Cornelius? Right. So in the first instance, it would appear that we should see a thematic connection between the two passages, because in both of them, we have the idea that all of the people in the world are under a common covenant that God makes with them. In Genesis, it's the Noahide covenant, and in Acts, it's the new covenant that Jesus established. So that sounds like it could be a pretty solid basis for connection between the two passages, and if so, then we should expect to see some more common themes and perhaps some shared vocabulary that would bring these two together. That's what good writers do to make sure you don't miss the connections. Now, if we're going to make this work, we'll probably have to assume that Noah would take the position of Peter in this story. So Noah comes off the ark and offers sacrifices using clean animals, and God is pleased. We could see that as some kind of reflection of his Jewishness for the sake of the story, even though Noah wasn't actually Jewish at all. Basically, it's the narrator telling us that Noah's a good guy. He does right by God. Then there's an exchange between God and Noah. God tells Noah that he can eat any animals whatsoever, and he reiterates the instruction given to Adam about being fruitful and multiplying. There's no discussion around clean versus unclean foods, although you could argue that it's implied in the context of a recent sacrifice of clean animals. I don't think there's a strong argument there, but I guess it's possible. Given that both passages talk about this idea of being able to kill and eat all kinds of animals, it would seem like there's a very strong parallel there. In Acts 10, the meaning of that statement is understood by Peter to mean that all people can be made acceptable to God and should be welcomed as part of the body of believers. We've talked before on this podcast about how eating something is symbolic because you're making it a part of your own body. And when understood this way, we can see how Peter's instruction to eat unclean animals can be understood as welcoming those outside of his Jewish community to become part of the body of faithful followers of Christ. So when Peter has this vision and he's told to kill and eat these animals, he doesn't go to see Cornelius and kill and eat his family. Instead, he welcomes them into the body of Christ. But is that what's going on with Noah and the animals? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because as we continue through the passage in Genesis 9, we see that there's still a distinction made between the animals and human beings. So if we were to be consistent with the imagery in Acts 10 and assume that it's lifted from Genesis 9, we would have to argue that the animals are representative of the nations in Genesis, 
which means that the animals and the humans in Genesis 9 can't be the same thing, because if you do that, then you have to argue that Noah brought people from other nations on board the ark rather than literal animals. And then he saved them through the flood and brought them off the ark. And you'll also have to argue that certain of those people were sacrificed as offerings to God after the flood. Don't forget that Peter himself, who is the guy we're talking about in Acts, wrote in his own letters that God saved only eight persons through the flood. So there aren't any other people in the story, even if we were going to talk about them using animal imagery. And we have to apply that standard of consistency because we have no indication that what follows the flood is to be considered as some kind of apocalyptic dream vision. So we need to treat the narrative consistently from start to finish, which requires that the people are people and the animals are animals. If you want to see people from the nation sharing in the salvation of the flood story, the best way to see that is to consider the sons of Noah as the ancestors of the nations, I guess. That's right. I should say, though, that I really did put some serious thought into this question because I can sense possible connections through some potentially unlikely avenues. One of those avenues was a part of the text of First Enoch, which we were talking about earlier, uh, which is known as the animal apocalypse. That is chapters 83 to 90 in First Enoch. I should probably say a little something about that text. I often hear people asking why First Enoch isn't considered canonical. It's not that it was removed from the Bible, it's the other way around. It was never included, at least in 99% of Christian churches. Canonicity was not decided in church councils. It grew out of the life and practice of the church. And since First Enoch was never included for most churches, it wasn't an issue of whether it was declared canonical or not. That wasn't a decision or question that most people were concerned with. Having said that, the lack of inclusion of First Enoch in the canon was due to several factors. I'm not getting into the whole thing because I'm already on one tangent and I haven't got time for another one, but let's just say that this animal apocalypse was controversial. And not because of the horrible sexually explicit imagery that I'm not going to talk about, there are kids listening, but because the vision in part describes stuff that would have been in the future from the perspective of the author, that's late second century BC and onward, and it was quickly proven historically incorrect. And you know what the Bible says about prophecies that don't come true, right? Isn't there something in Deuteronomy about stoning false prophets to death? Yeah, and there is that, yeah. Anyway, there's a part in chapter 83 where Enoch has a vision in which the heavens are lowered to the earth. That part kind of reminded me of the beginning of Peter's vision, but then it goes on to describe in vivid language the cosmic upheaval of the future destruction of the universe. I don't think Peter had that in mind. And then Enoch has this dream beginning in chapter 85 in which he witnesses biblical history played out with animals instead of people. That includes a substantial flood tradition. This might have been a good precedent for Peter's vision, except that despite Peter's and Luke's familiarity with First Enoch, again, we have a problem with inconsistent interpretation. If Peter was following this pattern, he himself would have been one of the sheep that Enoch described as the allegorical Israelites. We just don't have enough to substantiate a correlation between these texts to even suggest that Peter may have interpreted Genesis through First Enoch. However, someone who may have interpreted Peter's vision through the lens of First Enoch was Luke, the author of not only the gospel that bears his name, but also the book of Acts. Luke writes in chapter 10 of his gospel that Jesus sent out the 72 as sheep among wolves, which is language borrowed directly from the animal apocalypse before telling them to eat whatever is set before you, which is the same thing God tells Peter in his vision, as narrated by Luke. 
Unfortunately, what we don't have in Luke 10 is any hint of allusion to Genesis 9, and that's why we really needed to seal this. Another aspect of the animal apocalypse that would have been a neat detail to include if there had been a link is the use of colour in Enoch's vision to designate different people groups. This isn't about skin colour or different races of humans. In the vision he sees animals, and the animals are either white or black or red in colour. It's not racism. Enoch uses the colour red to designate people who are neither the line of the righteous, who are described as being white, nor the evil ones, who are described as being black in colour. Red is for the nations that are peripheral to this central story. That's interesting because we see red in the biblical story used in the same way with the Edomites, who are sometimes used to represent the nations as a whole. And the first man, Adam, who we've talked about at some length in earlier episodes. The Hebrew word dam is the word for red or blood because red is the color of blood, which is suggestive of human life. If we'd seen any kind of association of those colors with Peter's vision in Acts 10, we might have connected to Genesis 1 through 1st Enoch in that way, but it just isn't there. It would have been easy to look at incidentals, like the fact that Peter was staying by the sea as a possible flood reference, or the idea of both Noah and Peter being situated outside of Israel, but there's really nothing substantial there, and it doesn't contribute to a common overall message or even a consistent theme, unfortunately. We notice also that the lists of different kinds of animals are different between Genesis 9 and Acts 10, so it would be hard to argue that Luke was borrowing that idea from Genesis. So I just want to admit to our listener who sent in this question to Justin that I really wanted to get on board with this and see that connection legitimately there because the possibility was intriguing. And I was pretty keen to see if there was any way to make it work. That could have given us some pretty interesting theological connections. Unfortunately, I just don't see it. Not if I'm being honest anyway. It was a great question and it shows that you were thinking pretty deeply about all this stuff and that's great to see. So I'd encourage you to keep asking those hard questions. Keep looking for those patterns and connections in the text because you never know when you're going to find one that will really pay off. Thanks again for the question, and I'm looking forward to doing it all again next time. Yeah, that was really cool. I'd never heard of that before. We've got some pretty smart listeners out there, and that thing about the animal apocalypse was pretty interesting as well, that's for sure. Anyway, it's time to wrap it up for another week, and we'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. All right, I'll see you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephanie on Amazon, paperback, and Google. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreekscc.com, giantanswers.com. Read the blog and have some socials, but you can subscribe to the Friends of the Show. 
send us more your questions, stay tuned to this podcast and get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. The first thing that we're confronted with is the idea that Lamech has... Yeah, I did it again. Lamech. Yeah, I'm not as uh, not as young as I thought I was, though. You'll always be younger than me. Spry and healthy and no, sleeping well. The opposite of all of those. Oh, um, dear. On the... Goodness sake, the noise around here. Um, yeah, Sunday afternoon, um, I decided to take the kids out to the local skate park because uh, Declan had been asking for ages if I'd take him. Yeah. So we all got on our push bikes and, uh, well, me and the three kids, and we headed for the skate ramp. And when we got there, you know, the kids were a bit daunted because, you know, it's a big concrete bowl and you sort of have to drop in from the side. Yeah. Uh, and they were a bit nervous. and Understandably. You know, they for a while they were just kind of improvising like, you know, they would just um, get off the bike and slide down the down in into the bowl and then yep. pull the bike down and, and then, you know, ride around in the bottom. Right. They wanted to be able to ride it properly and, you know, try some tricks and stuff. And I said, well, you're going to have to just, you know, sort of commit to it and, you know, ride off the edge and drop in like, you know, the other kids are doing. And I could see Declan really wanted to do it. I mean, it was his idea after all. He'd been pushing for ages to do it. And then when we got there, he was chicken and, you know, he's kind of hanging a wheel over the edge. And I'm like, oh, geez, if you do that, you, you're going to end up breaking bones. You know, you you got to commit to it or, or don't. But you can't sort of, you know, go in sort of half-cocked or you're in, you'll end up landing on your face. Yeah. So I thought, right, well, I guess I, it's up to me to encourage him and you know i'll just show him how it's done i think i can see where this is going but continue so uh so i got on my bike dropped in down the bowl come up the other side suddenly realized i didn't have enough speed to get to the top couldn't turn around and just fell off it <laughs> drop drop backwards into the bowl um yeah. ended up sort of twisting around and and bracing the impact with my arm to save my face. And um, I almost broke my arm. I landed pretty um, I did break the bike. Um, so <laughs> after uh, oh, no. a, a humiliating few attempts at trying to get out of the bowl, uh, nursing injuries on two legs and two hands and my left arm, <laughs> Oh, dear. Right, we better go home, kids. Um, by this time, they were a bit tired anyway because they'd been playing for a bit. And um, so, yeah, cruise time, I had no break, so that was interesting. Almost got cleaned up by the Woolies delivery truck. And, um, yeah, after getting home and, you know, put the kids to bed and everything, I was like, oh, this is not hurting less. Um, maybe I should go to the hospital. Ugh. I went to Rockingham Hospital at like 9 o'clock at night and nobody came to see me till about midnight. Had some x-rays done. What? Then there was some big emergency Ugh. and all the doctors got called away, so I had to wait until 4 a.m. for a doctor to <laughs> look at the x-rays and go, yeah, you know what, um, probably just got some tissue damage. Not much we can do about that. We'll send you home with uh, some anti-inflammatories and, uh, yeah, get some rest. Anyway, the beauty of the medical system is, uh, you know, at least I didn't have to pay for that. Yeah, so, true. 
you know, off home with a prescription and a medical note for, for work, give me the week off. Now I'm wandering around the place trying to do everything with one hand because I can't even lift my left arm under its own weight. <laughs> Man. But hopefully that is temporary, I'm assuming. Uh, well, it better be. <laughs> yeah, after the uh, right. anti-inflammatories do their job. and Wow, that's intense. Yep. So, yeah, it's all or nothing. And when you get in there, uh, you suddenly picked up a lot of speed. And uh, I'm carrying a lot of weight, so that doesn't go well for you when uh, you fall from six feet here and uh, land backwards. <laughs> How many attempts did it take you to get out then? It doesn't sound easy. Uh, yeah, I had to kind of scramble around and have a few attempts at a, at a run up and jump out the, the low side of the bowl. <laughs> Man. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty humiliating. <laughs> <laughs> so you won't be going there again. You happy, kids? You happy? Uh, no, I probably <laughs> for the sake of the kids, you know, because, you know, the whole intent was to encourage them to try things and, and get into stuff and enjoy it, so... No. Oh dear. The love of parenting exceeds all bounds of wisdom. Yeah. For some reason I didn't do the maths, you know, and, and was like, oh, it's been 25 years since I've done this, but I'm sure I'll be right. Oh, and I do weigh more than double what I used to weigh then. Oh, well, I'm sure it'll be fine. Come on, kids, you know, when I was your age, I used to do this. Here, let me show you how easy as it is. Yeah. Help, help. And then asking some teenage strangers to lift me up, are you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, some old fat guy just fell down in the skate ramp. What do we do? <laughs> uh, TikTok. Let's run. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. 